Tonight's Old Testament reading is Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, and they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we were brought to your end to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. This summer, we have uh, studied the series called The Songs of God from the Book of Psalms. Uh, and we have looked at various passages that talked about the attributes of God. And every time we open the Word, uh, it's important for us to understand that our study of the Word is never done in vacuum, meaning our prayer is that what we talk about here and what we discuss in our community groups will always translate into who we are and what we do. In fact, Eugene Peterson, a pastor and scholar who has mentored a generation of pastors, including myself, has said this, and I paraphrase. He says, theology is more than knowledge. It's lifestyle. And we want the word that we're about to open up to give shape to how we think, how we feel, how we express ourselves how we enter into relationships, how we work, how we do community, and how we even see the city and engage it, because I believe that's where the word takes us to. Will you join me as we pray? God, we come before you, and we humble ourselves before your word. We ask now that you would open up our hearts to not only receive, but to believe that these words are true and that you have given us all the resources for us to live it out. And I pray that you would teach us to be people who will be diligent in studying and obeying your word. Speak to us in Christ's name. Amen. Robert Frost once said, the brain is a wonderful organ. It starts working the moment you get up in the morning. I would disagree. Probably after two cups of coffee at least. Right? 
It starts working the moment you get up in the morning and does not stop until you get into the office. Work is one of those things we love to hate, at least for some of us. I know some of you are very passionate about your work and what you do, and and that's a blessing. Praise God for that. But part of our struggle, the tension we feel as we think about work and as we assess our life at work is due to our lack of theology of work. Christian faith has always affirmed the goodness of work. Adam, after all, was a gardener. He had dirt under his nails. The apostle Paul was a tent maker. He had calloused hands. And Jesus, the divine king, spent most of his earthly life learning his trade to know the difference between this wood and that wood and how to use this tool as opposed to that. You see, we are made to work. By work, I don't mean just a career, but in broadly speaking, we are called to exercise our gifts and to utilize our resources to seek the common good in all the various domains that God has called us to in the present, be it our office, our classroom, our homes, in the city, and so on. Theodore Roosevelt, he had this to say about work, and I thought it was really insightful. He said, far and away, the best prize that life has to offer is the chance to work hard at work worth doing. You see, there is a deep connection between our work and our humanity. And I would say our longing for meaningful work is part of God's good design. In Genesis 1, we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He worked. He created. And as God's image bearers, we are then called to create. Jesus appeals to this part of us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, where he encourages us to build our house, a metaphor for life, not on sand that's here and gone tomorrow, but on the rock that would be able to test, or stand the test of time. I think many of us in our honest moments, we fear that our work will not matter. We hear this all the time, don't we? Nothing is more demoralizing than meaningless work, survey says. And we long for the arc of our work to extend beyond just me and my little circle and even the generation that we find ourselves in. And the world has caught on to this. Psychologist Eric Erickson agrees. He says, according uh, to an individual, uh, according to Erickson, an individual in their middle adulthood, goes through a stage of life called generativity versus stagnation. And at this point, Erickson suggests that a person begins to feel a longing for lasting impact to leave a footprint in the next generation. And I think that's a longing in all of our hearts because you can only work so much for a paycheck. After a while, you start wondering, What sort of legacy will you leave behind? And some of you may be asking, didn't God condemn the people for 
trying to build a tower of Babel in which they were trying to make a name for themselves. Now, there's a lot to talk about here in Genesis chapter 11, but I think few things are worth noting. First, that the Tower of Babel, in short, is a declaration of independence from God. You see, God separated the heavens and the earth and called it good. And God would regularly come down to dwell with his people, Adam and Eve, in the garden temple. But the people, by the time we get to Genesis chapter 11, basically say, no, we want to call the shots. We're going to say when we can do what and with whom. And so they gather together to make this tower that will reach to the heavens as to say, we will save ourselves. We will become God. Do you hear the serpent's temptation in those words? And in Genesis chapter 11, God came down and scattered the people because of their sin. Later in the Bible, God would come down once again. He would take on human flesh to dwell among his people. And rather than judgment, he will offer grace. And rather than scattering them, he will gather them as he is lifted up on the cross that you and I would behold the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. You see, the only way back to God is through Jesus, who through his death reconciled God to us. He is the way. Not our religion because we can never be religious enough. Not our spirituality because we can never be spiritual enough. Not our morality because we can never be good enough. He is the way. It's certainly not a tower. But nowhere in Genesis chapter 11 does God rebuke the people for wanting to make something that reached beyond their generation. In fact, Psalm 90 says, the very desire and longing for meaningful work is a reflection of the glorious nature of God. He is eternal. And our ache and longing for our work to matter, to go beyond this immediate circumstance we find ourselves in, is a reflection of Him in us. Psalm 90 is the only psalm written by Moses. And it was written towards the end of Israel's 40 year of wandering in the desert. And you may recall Israel wandered 40 years in the desert until the generation that came out of Egypt perished because not just their struggle to believe and hold on to God's promise, but because of their apostasy. They basically said, thanks, but no thanks, God. We're going to do this our way. And they rejected God and said, let's just go back to Egypt because we had it much better then. I think this weighed heavy on his heart. You see, Moses witnessed firsthand the vanity of homeless wandering and the tragedy of death. And yet in the midst of such tragedy and meaninglessness, Moses offers us great hope. Psalm 90, in that sense, is our psalm. Psalm that all of us who make our way through the desert ought to be praying as we come face to face with hopelessness and despair. And maybe that's where some of you are 
And God, I believe, wants to encourage you with this psalm so that you would find grace for today and prayer that you would be praying in the days to come. So let's look at two things. First, a sigh in the desert, and then we'll look at the beauty in the desert. First, a sigh in the desert. Psalm 90 parallels Genesis 1 through 3 and provides a brief commentary on the fallenness of man. In Genesis chapter 1, we read that God tames chaos and brings it to order by speaking the universe into existence, including man. And Adam and Eve were given authority over the garden to reflect God's glory through work, through work. They were to work the garden and exercise God's good authority, and thereby reflecting God's glory here on earth. You and I, in one sense, are called to the same thing. We are reflectors, reflecting back to God, His glory through our work. But something went horribly wrong. Adam and Eve committed a cosmic treason, which the Bible calls sin. And from that point on, everything we know has been marred and twisted, disfigured by sin. And now we find ourselves living in a world filled with toil and trouble, a mere shadow of Eden. And Moses begins to describe that life here in Psalm 90, beginning with verse 5 all the way to verse 11. He basically says, the tragedy of life is its brevity. And the wise teacher of Ecclesiastes summed it up well when he said, all is vanity. Why? Because nothing lasts. We work hard to contribute to amass wealth, to gain wisdom, but we leave it to who knows what. And I think Kansas was right. All we are is dust in the wind. If you want a little pick-me-up, this is your song. Just kidding. You want to say, dreams pass before us. Our work is just a drop of water in endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground. You guys encouraged yet? Nothing lasts forever. It slips away, dust in the wind. You know what else is dust in the wind? Cleaning my house. That's dust in the wind. You see what I did there? Dust in the wind? You, yeah? Yesterday, I know, I know, sorry. Yesterday, we spent a good amount of time cleaning the house. And I was standing in the corner telling my four children what to do and how to clean. And it got tiring real quick. Okay? <laughs> I, I'm not that bad. I, I do some work. Okay? But we cleaned the house, and it lasted for about eight Minutes. I timed it. Okay, it lasted about eight minutes. You can see chaos trailing behind us as we're putting things away, cleaning this, wiping that down, vacuuming. You can see my boys beginning to pull things out and throw things and mark things. And before you know it, it looks like what it was just eight minutes ago. You know... Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun and 
reflecting upon the messiness of my family. Like I was having like this personal like revival in the corner of my house. Like the Lord knows my heart. He knows the situation. He knows my house. It's as if he's been there. Moses mentions the cause. Why are things the way they are here in verse 8? You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. And Apostle Paul later on in Romans 6.23 would say, for the wages of sin is death. You see, the brevity of life, which is really the root of meaninglessness, is caused by sin. We have done it to ourselves. Death, the great anomaly, is the consequence of sin. And I don't know if you've walked around the streets of Washington and really looked around at all the statues lining the city. They're a sight to behold. They're beautiful. Their accomplishments echo even now. But you know, the dark side of all of that is that everyone dies. Regardless of who you are and what you have accomplished, what sort of footprint you left in your generation, and how many paragraphs you take up in the history books of here in our country, you are going to die. You encouraged yet? Some of you who know the story may be asking, that doesn't sound very fair. Is it right for God to impose the death sentence for eating a fruit from a tree? It's not like they committed, you know, a, a, a horrible sin. It's not like they broke one of the Ten Commandments. They just ate from a tree. That's also a topic for lengthy discussion, but let me just say this. It has everything to do with God's holiness. And Glenn talked about this last Sunday. The measure of God's wrath against sin is a measure of God's holiness. And how holy is he? He is infinitely holy. And even the smallest sin, what we would regard as small sin, in God's eyes, is infinitely offensive. God did not intend things to be this way. And praise God that he would not leave things this way. You see, when Christ walked out of the grave that one Easter morning, he defeated sin and death and promised to return to restore all things. He's going to finish what he started. And you know what that means? For all those in Christ... Death has an expiration date. We don't have to live in fear of death anymore because we know that God who came to redeem us has redeemed even death so that this thing, this anomaly, that is God's final word of judgment on the people has now become a means of entering into glory. Pain and suffering do not get the final word, God does. And he has spoken that final word, and that word is Jesus. Jesus ended his earthly life on the cross with a sigh that we might never have to live a single day or even a single moment in fear of God's wrath. If you have placed your faith in Christ. You don't have to worry about 
his wrath. And you don't have to worry about how you're going to rectify shame and guilt because Christ has dealt with that once and for all. And as Paul said, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is true freedom. That we don't have to always look back to see if God approves of us. That he delights in us. That's the beginning point. We know he approves of us. We know he delights in us because of the cross. And we then live out of that message and engage people and work in this city with hope that God, who has done that for us, will do that through us. Which leads us to our second point, the beauty in the desert. The harsh conditions of life outside of Eden force us to look for a savior. The idols come and they promise to be our savior. And that's why these idols are so attractive. Obviously, we in the West, we don't bow before wooden carvings or stone images, but we do plenty of idol worshiping here. As Tim Keller, one of the pastors up in New York said, you know, there are four core idols. Now, whether you agree with this or not, I think he gets at something that is fundamental to our heart. We bow before idols of power, control, comfort, and approval. And they take on many shapes and forms, be it money, relationship, or the corner office, or a degree that hangs in our office. We bow before these things because we somehow have bought into the lie that they will be our Savior, that they will be our God, and they will put back together all the broken pieces of our lives. Humpty Dumpty, the old nursery rhyme, is spot on. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. You know, every time I read that nursery rhyme, I wonder, like, what, what are the horses doing there in the first place? Maybe if the horses weren't there, they would have been a little more successful. All this to say, nothing. Not, no idol in this world can restore us the broken image that we carry with us today. Life in the desert caused Moses to look outside of himself and all the idols that he witnessed in Egypt. And now, beginning with verse 12, he prays. He prays to the one who can. And let me say a few words about prayer before we dive into Moses' prayer here. Many of us think that prayer is in preparation for the great work. We think about the ministry year that's to come, and we sort of gear up and we pray because we know that God wants to do something here in our faith community and in the city. So we pray up. But I would say prayer is the great work. Charles Spurgeon once said, prayer moves the hand that moves the world. Does your prayer life reflect that? Do you really believe and do you pray as if your prayer moves the hand that moves the world? Not that all of a sudden our prayer would be like waving the wand and we would get everything we want, but that our prayers 
will move God's heart, who will work out that work and infuse that story into this broken world and redeeming lives. Do you really pray like that? And I think it's a good reminder for us that our ministry of deed and word cannot and must not exceed the ministry of prayer. Why? The great work is done on our knees. And I pray that we as a church, as we think about our call to pray, to serve this city well, to reflect the glory of God, the beauty of the gospel, that we would begin on our knees as we exercise faith and humility in prayer before God. Each of these verses here in uh, Moses' prayer could be a sermon, but for the sake of time, we're just going to look at one verse, verse 17, and we'll pull from uh, others. Verse 17 says, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The word favor is used uh, elsewhere in the Bible to describe beauty, majesty, wisdom, and glory of God. So what do we mean by the beauty of the Lord? Does it mean that God is lovely to look at? That he has a face like we do know? I uh, borrow from the late Edmund Clowney here, an Old Testament professor at Westminster Seminary. Um, he says, in God, there is the totality of the infinite fullness of beauty, majesty, wisdom, and glory. In God, there is the totality of the infinite fullness of beauty. Whether you believe in God or not, your longing and your delight in beauty is your longing for God. To put it differently, every expression of earthly beauty is a window into the beauty of God. Recently, during my week-long absence, my family committed treason and brought home a teacup Maltese. Because apparently, parenting four kids in the city is not enough. Like, do we even parent, right? For uh, the non-canine experts in the room, let me describe or explain a teacup Maltese. It is a small, white headache, okay? <laughs> even though I am not a fan like, you have to understand, it's not like there was this vetting process, like, should we get a pet and narrowing it down to what sort of pet? None of that. It's just, I kept getting texts. We might get a puppy. No, 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 no. She is cute. No, oh, my goodness. And then I come, and there she is, in the flesh. I have to admit, though, she's kind of cute. She is. And uh, we're trying to learn to, uh, like, walk this dog. And it's been, like, this intricate dance between the dog and us. The dog is, like, this big. Like, how far can it walk? I mean, it walks like a block and it's, like, out, you know. But somebody in the family, I'm not going to say who, but I'm married to her, insists that we need to walk this dog and give it proper exercise. And I'm like, I don't think so. I mean, it's tiny. 
You know, like it goes from one end of the house to the other, and I think it's done, right? No, we're trying to walk it, and it's this weird dance. Like I go out and take her. I'm like, come on, Katie. And she looks back at me like, what? (laughs) You want me to actually walk in this heat? And so there's this awkward moment where we gaze into each other's eyes and we make all kinds of meaning into what that moment's like. Anyway, all that to say everyone who has seen Katie Lucy Park, I mean, she's, she's not going back, okay? They all have the same reaction. I'm not going to try to imitate it for your sake. But it's, it's this encountering of beauty. You see something, a dog, or, or, you, or your favorite song, or, or your favorite movie, the story that you read about, and you can't help but to be moved by the beauty of it. And all of those things that you find beautiful have their origin in God. And Moses prays, God, remove our shame, remove our guilt. Remove the wrath we have incurred with our sin and cover us with your beauty. Cover us with your beauty so that, we're going to come back to this part, but it's worth talking about this here, so that our work may have eternal value. And if you go back and sort of read what they did in the desert, they weren't building monuments or building cities. They just walked, okay? What sort of work, Moses, are you talking about? What, what kind of prayer could this be? And in verse 16, we find out what Moses is doing. He is praying for the generations to come. He is saying, God, rest your beauty upon your people so that as they enter into the promised land, that they may function as your people, promoting peace, and prosperity, true shalom, so that all peoples on earth will be blessed through them. That all peoples on earth will glimpse your beauty, your goodness, and they will come in to your reign. And it's interesting, and for us, I think we have to remember that practically this happens through our work. Our work. Not just a career, but any and every effort we make to promote human flourishing. Spurgeon said this. He said, work and divine beauty at first sight, how different, yet on deeper insight, how truly one, how inseparably united. And Makoto Fujimura, a world-renowned visual artist in New York City, he helps us to understand the inseparable relationship between our work and God's beauty. He says, God uses our work, your work, where you're going to be tomorrow morning. God uses our work as a vehicle to create the world that ought to be. God is demonstrating his beauty, certainly through this community, as we come to love one another, to serve one another here. But he uses your work to demonstrate his beauty, his glory in your workplace. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, everyone will be forgotten. Nothing we do will make any difference. And all 
good endeavors, even the best, will come to naught unless there is God. If God of the Bible exists, then there is a true reality beneath and behind this one, and this life is not the only life. Then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones, pursued in response to God's calling can matter forever. I hope, people of God, as you think about work, and as you sort of ramp up to get ready for another season of work, would hear God's words of approval and his commitment to work beauty in your domain, wherever that may be, in your work, in your office, in your relationships, through your effort. And that your work, the quality of work, would reflect that. But let's come back to Moses' prayer where he prayed, Lord, let the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Remove our guilt, remove our shame. Let your beauty rest upon us. And God would answer that prayer. This is what John says in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. His beauty, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus is the epitome, the fullness of God's beauty personified. And on the cross, Jesus was made hideous so that you and I would once and for all see the full extent of God's beauty for us. You see, God's glory was most clearly demonstrated on the cross where justice and mercy met that God would go out of his way to love us, to shower us with his grace, to remove our guilt and shame, and to deal with wrath once and for all so that we could experience his glory. And that's what Jesus says time and time again in the Gospel of John. He refers to the hour of his death as hour of glory, hour of beauty in which we would see God most clearly. How do we respond as God's people? 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul says, give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord as those who have now been given this grace, those favored by God, we ought to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. And Paul here is not talking to vocational ministers. He's talking to slaves, merchants, economists, scholars, and politicians alike. And he's saying, go, go into your office, go into your stores, go into your relationships, and give yourselves, your heart fully to the Lord as you work with integrity and excellence. Earlier this week, I ran into an article on Facebook entitled, this one woman, FEMA, is changing lives amid disaster in Baton Rouge. It's about one of our former Grace Downtown members, Sarah, Love, uh, Sarah Joy Hayes. And it's a beautiful article about her using her gifts, mobilizing people, various resources to serve a community that is in need. She's not passing bills and policies, debating things, 
you know, in the state capital. No, she's simply doing what she can out of her house, out of her garage, and providing simple things like toiletry, clothes, water. On the one hand, you can say, well, yeah, sure. But I think God looks at that, and he is pleased. He establishes himself through that and reflects his glory, his beauty. That's being done right there out of our living room. And I think this is a calling that you and I all have as God's people, as we think about what it means to reflect God in our work, that we would work as we give ourselves fully to the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We pray that you would now speak to our hearts, that you would put these words you would press them deep into our hearts, that your approval, your grace, your mercy for us would affect how we work, how we do relationships, how we engage the city. In Christ's name, amen.